Well, I think it was three Sundays ago that we were uh, back in, in, we were in Romans, and we're going to return there today, so I'd encourage you to find Romans chapter 14. And in Romans 14, we're talking about Christians who disagree with each other, not about key doctrines, not about fundamental truths that the Bible teaches, but about secondary issues and especially issues of conscience where Christians have different views and different practices. And there is a need for people who have different views, who make different choices, and even disagree with each other about some of those personal choices, to be unified in worshiping and serving God together. In the same church, even right? Not just in the same body of Christ, generally speaking, universally speaking, not just even in the same community, but in the same church. There's a need for Christians who, who disagree about matters of personal choice to be able to function in harmony and to worship God together in unity. And I, I'm going to go a step further, and I'm going to ask you to think about this. Let this kind of spin in your mind a little bit, and, and I'll come back to it as we conclude the fact that really the body of Christ needs, the body of Christ, the church, the local church, needs people who don't all agree. It's a healthy thing in, this, in the context of a local church that when it comes to personal choices and, and issues of conscience and, and, and secondary issues where we think differently, it's good for us and healthy for us to have some disagreement. Now, why would that be the case? Well, just keep that in your mind, right? And we'll circle back to that a little bit later. The problems that we run into are issues of our pride, which we all have. Feelings of superiority, which we are all vulnerable to. But then another one would be elevating our views to the level of seeing it as a matter of right versus wrong, not only for ourselves, but imposing that on other people. So I, I come to a conclusion about one of these secondary issues, matters of conscience, personal choice, and I not only say that this is what is right for me to do, but, but I go to the level of saying that's right for you to do and wrong if you don't. And we can tend to look down on people who have a less sensitive conscience than we do or that have a more sensitive conscience than we do. In other words, people that are more strict, more restrictive in the choices that they make or people that, say, feel more liberty and freedom in the choices that they make. It, we can tend to look down on the people around us and then we would add to that, judge the people around us, right? Condemn the people around us. And that ultimately divides the body of Christ. And I do want to call us this morning, I want to call you as a church to think about this. Is it possible, and again, let this, let this simmer in the back of your mind a little bit as we talk today. Is it possible that, that you might have made a personal view that you feel very strongly about and you would say this is right for me or this is right for my family? Is it possible that you might have made that view into a criterion for fellowship? 
or for people being able to serve in the ministry? Is it possible that you have elevated it to that level, which can even result in a shrinking number of people who can actively function in the church, right? So, so if here are my views and here are the criteria for people fellowshipping with us as a church and serving in our church, then, then those views become only as broad as your views and then the people who can function and, and fellowship and serve in the ministry are only those who fit and follow within your views. That's the danger, right? So is it possible, I'm asking, is it possible that that can be happening here? Uh, three Sundays ago, we talked about the real issues, so disagreeing Christian, the, Christians, the real issues. And just look with me at, at verse 1, chapter Romans 14, verse 1. He says, receive... That's accept, but it's more than just kind of a passive, oh, well, sure, it, you're okay, we'll accept you. No, it's, it's a warm embrace. It's a, it's, a, it's a welcome. Receive, welcome. One who is weak in the faith, and, and, and that phrase is describing someone with a more sensitive conscience who might make more restrictive decisions in these secondary issues. But not to disputes over doubtful things. Not don't welcome them, come on in, come over to my house. Okay, let's debate. You know, that's not what that's not what he's saying. He's saying don't don't bring them into to your ring of fellowship so that you can persuade them to your view. But but the positive point is to welcome them. So so the real issues we said include accepting one another. Accepting one another. Don't be critical of other believers of different conclusions than you about these issues. Accept them. Welcome them like a friend. Live and serve in harmony in the same church with them would be a very specific way to say that. So the real issues include accepting one another, but the real issues also include, we saw, accountability to Jesus Christ. Accountability to Christ. We are all accountable to him. Look at what he says in verse 10. But why do you judge your brother? Why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God, so then each of us shall give account of himself to God. So that's the second key issue that we talked about. We will all ultimately answer to God for our choices. And, in fact, at the judgment seat of Christ, we will be rewarded and we will be rewarded not just for the choices that we made, but for how we made them, what our motives were as we made those choices, and how we treat others in the process. So that's the basis of that judgment by which we will be rewarded by Christ for honoring him. So we have accountability to Jesus Christ. Today we come to the second part of, of this study on disagreeing Christians, and the focus here is the right actions, the right actions. I'm going to read for us the text starting with verse 13, and then we'll read into the beginning of chapter 15. So Romans chapter 14, verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. I know. And I'm convinced by the Lord Jesus that there's nothing unclean of itself. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. 
Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it's evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself and what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. So what Paul is doing here is giving us instructions. And uh, there are some ways that he does this in the, in the language that he uses. You might notice that he repeatedly uses this uh, phrase, let us, or let something happen. That's an exhortation. Uh, there are at least four key times, key ways that he does that in this passage. And then he ends up with another kind of very lofty pronouncement. So, so I'm going to take those let us ideas, those exhortations, and then the last very focused point that he makes and turn those into five actions. So what are the right actions for disagreeing Christians? So five actions... And these, these should guide us. These should help us when we make our conclusions about issues of personal choice, but also when we decide what to do, how we're going to act in areas where the Bible is not clear and especially where we might disagree with each other about them. So what actions should you take? And I'm going to form these, state these in the form of questions to help us evaluate. So think in terms of, what you are about to do or what you're deciding to do in an issue where Christians may disagree. Here are questions that you can use to think through the process. And the first question is, will my actions encourage another person to sin? 
He uses the, uh, the word or the phrase stumbling block in verse 13. Resolve this, he says, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way in verse 13. We think of uh, something maybe laying on the sidewalk or laying in the garage, something that's been left out in the pathway where you walk and you would tend to trip over that. That's the idea of a stumbling block. This, this uh, phrase, a cause to fall, is interesting. I think some translations use the word a, a cause of offense. And what this is talking about is actually the trigger mechanism in a snare that's designed to catch an animal. Think of a very simple snare. Let's say there's a, a basket or a box. It's been propped up on a stick, and there's a piece of string tied to the stick, and there's a little bit of meat or a carrot, if you want to catch a rabbit, tied to the string, and so the little bunny frou-frou comes in unsuspectingly underneath the basket and starts to nibble on the carrot and then grabs hold of it with its mouth and pulls on the string, the stick falls and down comes the basket and little bunny frou-frou is lunch, right? Um, so that's the idea, the trigger of the trap. So, so what Paul is saying here is don't, don't be the person or don't do something that's going to be the trigger of a trap in a person's life, something that would cause them to fall or we would say lead them into doing something that for them would violate their conscience and would be wrong for them to do. So you and I can make choices that are within what God's word allows. There's a, a breadth of freedom there. We can make choices within what God's word allows, but it's possible for my choice and my action to actually lead somebody else into sin, to doing something that would be against their conscience or even would be actual sin. In verse 14, he says, he says I know. There's nothing unclean. Jesus declared all the food ceremonially clean. It used to be the Jewish people could not eat certain food. But Jesus said, you can eat anything. So, so it's all clean. But he says there might be somebody, let's say a Jewish brother in Christ, who still has a sensitive conscience about what he or she eats. So that, to that person, it is unclean. So, so what he's saying is that God has declared that no food was ceremonially unclean, but that's a technicality. And technicalities should not guide our actions. What should? Look at verse 15. If your brother is grieved, we might say is hurt because of your food, you are no longer, what? Walking in love. There is what should guide our actions, right? Love. So we think about the question, will my actions encourage another person to sin? Well, that's their problem. No. As a believer, I care about that person. I have concern for my brother and my sister in Christ. And so we should not just ask, is this okay? We should ask, how will this affect my brother or my sister in Christ? Now, I try to think of examples and here's an example, and let's see if this helps you think about it, all right? I'm going to tell you something about myself. I enjoy pure pleasure. I enjoy bluegrass music. Now, do you know what bluegrass music is? You might have kind of a stereotype in your mind of, you know, some kind of hick, you know, mountain twangy music. Well, that's about what it is. You're about right. Um, 
So basically, bluegrass music is, uh, it's an art form, okay? Let's call it an art form. It's an art form for sure. Folk art maybe, but it's an art form. Acoustic instruments, usually made up of uh, probably a banjo, a fiddle, maybe a, a guitar, uh, a bass, a string bass, and uh, mandolin, of course. I mean, the first time I walked in here to Northridge and saw a mandolin up here, I'm like, yes, this is the place right here, right? <laughs> so, I mean, th those are the instruments. Maybe a few others added in. And uh, just, just a fun sound, sometimes a mournful sound. Sometimes it's described as high and lonesome. All right, so off I go, talking about bluegrass music. I don't know why, but I've developed a taste and an affinity for bluegrass music. I just enjoy it. So uh, with, with that in mind, um, we, we had a ministry team at our church, and this is way back, years and years ago, ministry team at our church, and, and the man preached messages, and we came together, and, and uh, just powerful messages from God's Word. But this team also played some folk-type music, and some of their music would be considered bluegrass, right? So, so one night after one of the services, they gathered out on the porch, the outside porch of the church, and set up out there with their instruments. And so we're all standing out there, and they basically started a hoedown, right? They just started fiddling and playing and all that, and it was just, just fantastic. I'm loving it. So a guy walks up beside me, and um, he was a newer Christian. And we had a lot of, of first-generation believers in that church, and he had been saved as a, as a man and um, had lived a life, really, of just worldliness and partying. And, and uh, he walked up beside me and had a look of concern on his face, and, and he said, he said this, this reminds me of some of the drinking parties I used to go to. Now, that was interesting, right? I didn't shut him down or do anything. I just said, wow, that's interesting. That really made me think. And why was that? I'm not sure if it was bluegrass or, I mean, you know, up in Wisconsin, there's a lot of uh, polka, right, type music, roll out the barrel and all that kind of thing. And so maybe it was that kind of, that kind of music that, that he had heard. I'm not sure. I don't know. But something in it reminded him, and it took him in his mind back to that setting. Now, now I'm into hypothetical. Now I'm into kind of a what-if scenario because I don't, I don't know or think that this happened. But, but what if that triggered something in his mind and even awakened some memories and, and incited some renewed desires and even brought uh, a sense of, of literal thirst to his mouth for drinking and, and led him into falling back into the sin that he used to commit? It could have done that. I'm not saying it did. I don't think it did. But, but that's the kind of moment that can happen when we're doing something that is completely innocent and fun to us. But for somebody else, it might hit them in a way that could potentially even lead them into sin. Does that make sense? Is that helpful? All right. So, so whatever, whatever it is, whatever it may be that, that you and I think of as, well, I have the liberty, I have the freedom to do this, or I've made a choice that this is okay, we need to also think in terms of, all right, if there are people who might have concerns about this, is it possible that my actions might encourage another person to sin? That is a good question for us to ask. Question number two, is this action permissible for me but harmful to others? He says in verse 16, therefore do not let your good be spoken of as evil. So good, we might say, is permissible. 
So you've determined that there's nothing wrong with it. The Bible doesn't forbid it. It's in bounds. So it's permissible for you. And you would say, well, this is good. This is something that, that I can do. But evil is the sense of harmful, hurtful, and again, potentially enticing or encouraging someone towards sin. So, so your actions can be technically permissible, but spiritually harmful. And he says in verse 17, we, we shouldn't equate living under God's reign and living together and serving together in his kingdom under his rule with doing the things that we feel like doing and maybe even have the freedom to do, in this case, eating and drinking, what he's talking about in this context. So, so living under God's authority and living together within his reign is not about what you can or can't eat or drink. It is about these spiritual principles as he lists them in verse 17. Righteousness. So doing what is right before God. It is possible that you and I can choose to do something we would say is permissibly right, but in a certain situation it might not be right for us to do because it is hurting somebody else is a way to think about that. Peace, he says. Not, I have the right to do this. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. But what will promote harmony among believers? And then joy in the Holy Spirit. Where does your joy come from? What you eat, what you drink, exercising your freedoms, enjoying your liberty. Yes, there is joy in that. But you don't have to have those things. You don't have to do those things that could hurt somebody else in order to have joy. Where does your joy come from? The Holy Spirit, right? Not from those things that you and I tend to indulge in. Joy does not come from doing what you want, but from walking in the Spirit and being filled by Him. So, we should seek the kingdom of God, as Jesus said, right? Seek first the kingdom of God. We should be pursuing the things that contribute to God's kingdom and peace and unity within his kingdom, not our own selfish happiness. So, ask yourself, hey, even if this is okay for me, could it be harmful to somebody else? Another question to ask, am I making others stronger or weaker? And this is more than just, will it hurt somebody else? This is the other side of that thought. This points to helping another Christian. Notice in verse 19, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. What's edify? We would say help them grow spiritually. Help them grow in knowing God. And doing his will. Help them be strong. And he says in verse 20, don't destroy the work of God for the sake of food. What is the work of God? Well, it could be the church. But on an individual level, the work of God is going on in a person's life. So whether it's that new Christian or that person that may have a, a more sensitive conscience or maybe they are susceptible to, to falling back into a lifestyle 
We don't want to destroy the work of God in that person. We don't want to undermine or tear down the ongoing process of growth that God is accomplishing in that person's life. So the food or drink in itself might be pure and do no harm whatsoever. But the eating of it, the action that we perform, might be evil because of the effect. And it kind of cycles back through in in verse 21. And he says, so here's what's good not to eat meat or drink wine or anything by which your brother stumbles, that's tripped up, is offended. There's that word that means to be lured into sin or made weak. Their resistance is diminished. So that would be a good verse to think about right there, verse 21, and making our choices and thinking about the actions that we're going to be involved in, our practices and areas of life where Christians disagree, we have different views, we feel freedom, it's inside the boundaries of God's word, but we have to make a choice about it. All right, is there any way in which this is going to trip somebody up or possibly even lure them to sin or wear down or diminish their strength and their resistance against sin? And what he's saying in verses 22 and 23 is that, you know what? You have faith in God about what's right and wrong, and you make these choices, and and you follow God's will. That's great. That is a personal choice for you. And I would add to that there may be private situations where you can exercise and enjoy that freedom. And that liberty, I think that's what he's saying, have it to yourself before God. And you, you can experience joy in that. Happy is he who does not condemn himself and what he approves. But then he says, but if there's doubt, if you doubt, if there's a concern about what you're doing or how it may affect somebody else, then that brings condemnation. This is not saying you are condemned to hell. This is a factual, uh, judicial fault. You are at fault. You are in the wrong is the idea if you do that. Um, Because our trust in God and our concern for others should guide what we do and we should not contradict that because that is sin. That is sin is what he's saying. So think about the people around you. Think about your family members. Think about your friends. Even a neighbor who may be uh, a young Christian. What is the possible effect of the choice you make and the action that you perform? Building up others should always guide the choices that we make. Then we start into the beginning of chapter 15, and there's another question here. Am I considering others or just myself? Again, you hear the exhortation there in verse 1, we who are strong, those of us with with stronger consciences who feel more freedom, ought to bear with, you hear that exhortation, ought to bear with the scruples of the weak, their sensitivity, the, the restrictions that they feel. So, so those with a less sensitive conscience, those who feel more liberty, should have concern for those with a more sensitive conscience. And the idea of bear with here is more than just put up with. Oh, those 
weak Christians. We have to, you know, think about them and limit what we do. No, it's actually a positive approach to how we view them. The word bear means to carry a burden for someone else. It means to help them. It's the same word that Paul used in Galatians 6.2 where he said, in fact, you tell me, what one another's burdens? What is it? What is it? Yeah, you got it. Bear one another's burdens and you will fulfill the law of Christ, which is the law of love, the, the principle of selflessness. So yes, you and I have the opportunity. So here's my brother, here's my sister. They have a, a more sensitive conscience or they could potentially be enticed or encouraged to either, either go against their conscience or, or commit real sin, right, by what I do. So my thought should not be, oh, I have to put up with that person and I can't do, I don't get to do what I want to do. But I think, you know what, this is an opportunity for me to show the love of Christ to that person. To actually help that person in their spiritual walk and in their spiritual growth and show the love of Christ in doing so. He says we should, verse 2, please, please our neighbor for, for their good. In other words, think of their interests leading to edification. Not, not just be bound by their immature opinions or, or their selfish whims, but for their, their actual good, right? We need to have a heart to build them Now, this is where it can get hard for us. I think there's a tough balance here. Because God does give us liberty, doesn't he? He says, you know what, you're, you're free. Within the bounds of Scripture, I mean, you're, you're free from trying to keep all of the ceremonial laws of God. And you no longer have to endeavor to keep the, the moral law of God to be saved because Christ fulfilled that for you. You're complete in him. But you don't have to keep these ceremonial laws. And, and you now can walk in the spirit. And the spirit guides you within the, the parameters of the word of God. They're, they're the guardrails and the signposts of the commands of God's word that help us know where to go. But just like on a, on a six-lane highway in a big city, there's a lot of freedom there, right? You can move around in there. He says, you're, you're free, and that, that's one of the joys of being a believer is that freedom. And, and you can exercise your wisdom, the wisdom God gives you in making choices. You can pray for direction, and you can decide, you know what? It's okay for me to listen to bluegrass music in my garage while I'm working on a project. It's okay for me to listen to bluegrass music in my car. It's even okay for us to have a, a group that plays that style of music, maybe in a service or after it at a fun time or whatever. But I also need to be thinking of the impact those choices might have on others. Maybe even that I didn't anticipate or wasn't even sensitive to or aware of. So here's the balance. God gives us room to enjoy our freedom. And God gives us the prerogative to, to learn and apply wisdom. And he also gives us the opportunity to be unselfish and loving, doesn't he? He gives us that privilege of saying, all right, here's what I can do, and maybe I'm going to choose to do that. I'm thinking now in terms of how that might affect other people. Well, 
maybe here's an opportunity for me not to have to, but I get to show them love. In fact, Paul said this in Galatians 5.13. In the context of our liberty, he said, you have been called to liberty. But then he said, do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, right? Don't just use that freedom to indulge and do whatever you feel like. But, he said, through love serve one another. What a great guiding principle in these areas of personal choice. Okay, here's what I can do. If I want to do it, I can do it. How can I be motivated and guided by love and serve this other person? How can I do that? What a great thought. What a great privilege. Now, now why would we think that way? Well, look, look at what he says in, in verse 3, in, in Romans 15, verse 3. Four, here's the explanation. Here's why. Christ did not please himself. So our example is Christ. And instead of doing what felt good and indulging what was comfortable for him, no, he bore reproach. That word reproaches means insults and mockery and hatred. And of course, ultimately, the tortuous crucifixion on the cross. So if Jesus had done what pleased him, he would never have gone to the cross, would he? For you and for me. Those reproaches that he bore belonged to you. He did not deserve them. And he didn't have to take them. Those reproaches, those insults, that hatred belonged to you and to me, but he took them willingly for us. And he is our example. Now, kind of a side path here. Verse 4 is just a beautiful description of what we have in the Word of God. He's saying, all right, I'm telling you this, and I just quoted a verse from the Old Testament, and, and kind of by the way, here's why that's okay, here's why that matters, because those things that were written a long time ago, those Old Testament scriptures, hey, they have bearing on our lives. So he's kind of backing up his argument. But look at this verse and think about it for your life. Whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. This, this affects not just our decision-making process about issues. Yes, God's Word guides us about that but more broadly, the benefit that the Scriptures provide for all of life. They are for your learning. Learning what? Learning who God is. Knowing your great God. Discovering what He is like. And, yes, discerning what His will is for you. His general broad will, His purpose his direction, his instructions. Yes, we learn those for making all kinds of decisions. And what's the outcome of this? That we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, we think of patience as putting up with annoying people or something like that. Actually, patience here is a word that means endurance through hard circumstances. 
What is your source of strength to endure hard circumstances of life? You have it. It's here, isn't it? It is the scriptures. The scriptures help us with endurance and also they provide encouragement. The comfort of the scriptures, the the comfort that they give, the encouragement that they provide, what keeps you going. It's amazing how many times you and I can go to the scriptures over and over again and find encouragement. They encourage your heart. And these are reasons for you and me to read the Bible and meditate on the scriptures in order for God to infuse us with strength to endure and in order for God to supply encouragement, not only for decisions about these issues, but for anything life brings your way, especially the hard circumstances of life. Wonderful the way that verse ends, that we might have hope a confident expectation that what God promises will come to pass. It's all here in the word. So connect your life. Tie in, link in, plug in to the scriptures. Keep that pipeline open. Keep the, keep the valve wide open of the scriptures into your mind and your heart and your life because that is what will infuse strength to endure and encouragement for the way, the word of God. What great encouragement there is in the word of God. So the scriptures tell us and Jesus showed us that unselfishness is the way of Christ. The way of the world is do what pleases you, right? I mean, that's really what it comes down to. If you want it, if you want to do it, have it, be anything, just go. It's yours. The way of Christ is to accept limitations even suffer for the good of someone else. So in thinking back now and going back to these actions we're talking about related to choices, ask yourself the question, am I considering others or just myself? Now, I said Paul kind of goes to a, a high point here toward the end. I want you to see it. Starting in verse 5, now may the God of patience and comfort, so that patience and comfort that the scriptures give, they come from God. They characterize him and he supplies them to us. May this God grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore receive one another just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. So he's reaching back to the example of Christ, according to Christ, just as Christ. But he's exhorting us to do something. And he's pointing us to a key outcome and really the highest motivation for how we make these choices, and that is the glory of God. And so the question that we should ask ourselves in making these choices is, am I accurately displaying what God is like. Now, notice this is a prayer. Verse 5. May. 
God grant you. So we should be praying this way for ourselves. In fact, we should be praying this way for each other, shouldn't we? God, help us to think and live and act in these ways. Grant you. God can give this to you. To be like-minded toward one another. Remember we said Romans 12 through 16 is, is just filled with these one another's. Well, here is one of them. Be like-minded toward one another. This is the idea of, of thinking the same thing among each other. It doesn't mean that we all think the exact same way, particularly about these issues of preference. But he's saying there should be a like-mindedness toward each other, a like-mindedness of of considering each other and loving each other and edifying each other and carrying the burden for one another. We should all be thinking that way, is what he's saying. Following the pattern of Christ, according to Christ. And, and the idea of the glory of God is, is what God is like, who God is. See, Paul comes to this high point of his instruction, this high point of his exhortation, and verse 6 is a purpose statement that sums up the motivation for not being critical of others. The motivation for being considerate of others in issues where some have a more sensitive conscience and others a less sensitive conscience. And he says, that you may with one mind and one mouth. So what do we do together with our mouths? Well, we talk, right? We have fellowship. We, um, we have sharing times, maybe testimonies. We have discussion groups where people talk about how the sermon impacted them or what they learned from it, applications. We do that sometimes on Wednesday nights. What else do we do with one mouth that glorifies God? Exactly. We lift our voices together. That's one of the times when we are literally sounding with one voice to the Lord. We worship him together, don't we? And I think that may be what Paul is pointing toward here. He's saying, you know what? You can have differences and there can be disagreements, but if you have this like-mindedness, you care, you're concerned, you're considerate, you're bearing each other's burdens, when you stand and somebody says, let's sing, and you open your mouth and your voice comes out and you, you, you verbalize those words of worship to your great God, you know what that does? It glorifies God. It lifts him up and brings praise to him. The word glorify is from a word that means to think. To glorify God is to cause others. It's to have a right view of God yourself, but also to give others a right impression of who God is. To think highly of him. What is true of God? He is loving. He is self-sacrificing. He is giving are we depicting this in the choices that we make and the way we treat other people? Verse 7, receive to the glory of God. Bring his character and his nature into view by how you treat each other. And the implication of verse 7 is receive one another just as Christ also has received us. Who are you to distance yourself? From someone Christ accepts. 
Who are you to keep somebody at a distance? Who are you to restrict from fellowship? Who are you to treat as second class? Who are you to keep from serving God together in the church? Those whom Christ accepts. Strong implications there. Unity among Christians glorifies God to the glory of God. It brings his character, his, his loving character, his self-sacrificing nature into view. Disunity diminishes our ability to accurately represent God. And remember I said something at the beginning of, of the message. I said, not only do we need to be people who, even though we have disagreements, we actually have unity. But then I said something like, there's a, a sense in which maybe we need to disagree with each other about some issues. And, and my point in saying that is this. Our, our disagreements, our differences... And how we treat each other with those differences and the like-mindedness and the harmony and the love and the consideration and the mutual support. When there are these differences and even disagreements among ourselves, when we come together and we have that support and that love and that, that mutual concern, that just enhances the possibility and the potential we have of glorifying God. If we can overcome those differences and we can lay aside those disagreements and we can love and support and praise God together, that's a beautiful thing. In fact, look for a minute over at the book of Ephesians chapter 1. What is the purpose of the church? Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verses 22 and 23. Ephesians 1, 22 and he, that's God, put all things under his, that's Jesus Christ's feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. So Christ is our supreme guide. He is the one who gives us direction. We are in submission to him. The church, verse 23, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the purpose of the church is to, as fully as possible, represent Jesus Christ in the world. The purpose of this church is not to align and conform and fit everything and everyone within the parameters of your views, your choices, right? Whether that's with more liberty or more restriction, but to represent Christ. And when we have these differences and there's unity and harmony and blessing and love, oh, how we display the glory of Christ. Why should we want a church where people disagree with each other about personal choices? Because when we accept one another and consider one another and build up one another and show Christ-likeness in how we treat one another, we display the glory of God. And that's what we're here to do.
Father, thank you for how your word gives us strength is a source of the strength we need to endure and supplies us with comfort and teaches and instructs us. Thank you for showing us yourself, your glory. Thank you for the glory of Christ. Thank you for your love, for your sacrifice, and how I pray and ask now that you would help each of us to represent you accurately and clearly and as completely as possible, both individually as well as together as a church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.